From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. I'm Julia Child. Welcome to my house. What fun we're going to have. A new spin on a Julia Child recipe, buttery yellow cake. Ooh, that sounds good. Baking all kinds of incredible cakes, pies, and breads. Mastering right Julia's chocolate cake? Yeah, maybe the chocolate one. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sounds, sound bites, and little audio morsels we find all over the world. Orange sponge cake. Chocolate almond cake. Mm. Oh, I don't think we have any almonds. On the air, on the web, people are making amazing stories everywhere. We take the best from here, the finest from there, mix it together, a dash of salt, and voila, ReSound. Okay, so we've got our cocoa, we've got our flour. Today, we turn to my very favorite subject, my most happy topic, food. Eggs? Yeah, we've got eggs. Okay, let me get them. It doesn't just nourish your body, it feeds your senses, soothes your very soul. One cup of sugar, one and a half cups of flour, one The really good stuff is like eating music, chewing poetry, On today's menu, hot liquid tuna tater tots, chanterelle carrot surprise, wild morels, herbs from the garden, and to top it off, vepsho knedlozello. I'll be right back to take your order. For me, it all started with spaghetti casserole. Nothing fancy. Spaghetti mixed with Campbell's tomato soup, sautéed onions, and baked until the edges of the spaghetti got brittle and crisp like a giant SpaghettiO, only homemade. This was one of my mother's signature dishes, and there were plenty of others. A meat sauce like red velvet, a kugel like a pecan Danish. When it comes to learning the cuisine of your childhood, inheriting your mother's recipes is one thing. Achieving her perfect touch is another. But as we hear in our first story, you gotta start somewhere. Flour, milk, Four cups of breadcrumbs, yeast. I use two envelopes for five cups of flour and put one cup of warm water into it. Be sure it's warm, not hot. Sugar, one tablespoon sugar into it and mix it smoothly and be sure that your oven is ready. I turned it a few seconds and have the warmth for the yeast to, they call it, proving itself. It's Thanksgiving Day, um, 2008. I'm with my mother, Sonia Pajak. Tell me, Mom, what are we going to do? So what we are going to do to learn how to cook a very special, special dumpling called the bread yeast Viennese dumpling. How do you say it in Czech? Wiedenski Hoskovi Knedlik. And also takes uh, know-how, how to succeed with it. Therefore, I want Ben to learn it because he had no chance ever to watch it. The timer. You have to go. And now you make holes to get the hot air out. 
Is that a special tool? It it, it's a, a needle. needle. You took these two loaves of bread dumplings out of a hot boiling pot. Mm -hmm. What are you doing now? I'm slicing them with dental floss because they are so delicate. The knife would collapse them. I'm satisfied. This is a wonderful, delicate, uh, light like a cotton dough, but it has solid pieces of white bread cubes which were cut and dried in the oven. So that has to be all ready before you start making dumplings. Kitchen timer. Mm -hmm. It's a little clock-like for 10 minutes. I have to be sure the water is boiling when I form the loaf with wet hands under running water and put it in. I gotta tell you what this reminds me of. The, the color and the shape looks like a big termite abdomen. Now that's, that is, like a that's a joke. A termite queen, if you've ever seen them, they, they have this white... You know, I think, shiny. I think I am teaching entomologists some new tricks here. <laughs> that is funny. Every married Czech man who is worth his sword will know how to make this particular dinner. This dumpling and the cabbage and then the meat, that is a normal fare they have for holidays, so they all know how to do it. So how's it look? It looks perfect. I hope it will taste as good as it looks. You have to use the sauce to flood the dumpling, okay? Mm -hmm. Okay, this is a slice of that very tender pork. More. Okay, this is cabbage. Okay. You are committing a cardinal sin. Ready to eat without beer in front. What happened to the beer? Why beer? Because it's greasy and beer is supposed to be the catalyst, the healthy catalyst to help to digest it right. I'll go get the beer. This is a little unusual, isn't it, Mom? I mean, this is Thanksgiving dinner, and you and I are together, and we're not having turkey. We're having Vepsho Knedlo Zelo. Vepsho Knedlo Zelo. Zeli is cabbage. Bon appetit, Mom. Thank you. Sonia's Dumplings was produced by Sonia's son, Ben Pajak, an independent producer, entomologist, and Zydeco dance instructor. Mm-hmm. 
You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Bronchitis, circulation, cold, cough, flu, fever. A Cup of Tea with Annie Melvin, produced by Kavana Ramsire and Nikki Brown. A lot of people say catnip for the cats, but it's for us too. This is the best herb you can say anything about. Cramps, hemorrhoids, hiccups, morning sickness, pain. That's what catnip is good for. It's good for a lot of things. All you got to do is drink the tea off of it. I was born in a little place called White Oak, North Carolina. And I was raised on a farm. We grew everything we had. We had our own cows, tobacco, we had buttermilk, cotton, sweet milk, butter, peanuts, and we had our own chicken, corn, our own hogs, we had our own meat, eggs, syrup, hot biscuit, cabbage, ham, sweet potatoes, white potatoes. Now if you get sick, snake root, they'd go in the woods and dig up something. Put the grass and make tea out there, and we had to drink it. Boom, said. Now, in the woods, we got calmus root, pudge grass, snake root. Snake root, pudge grass, calmus root. Mmm, there's one more in there. Uh, can't think of the name of that one right now. This right here, let me tell you about this. This in here is what's called rabbit tobacco. Now, this right here, we used to smoke it in our pipe. It's good for asthma. It's good for fluency. They made tea out of it. Mix it with a long needle pine and put it in the pot and boil it. And then you drink it. And it's also good for pneumonia, too. Now, you might find that growing in the edge of the fields anywhere or downside the road. We would have our sack pulling along. we shake it out. Shake the sand off and put it in the sack. And after putting it in the sack, then we would take it home and wash it. And Mama would spread it out in a nice place where the sunshine is and let it dry. And i tell you something else I did when I was a child. My mom, she dipped snuff. She had that snuff up there over the mantelpiece now. I crawled me a chair up there. And I reached up there and got that box of snuff. And I pulled something in my hand. And about the time I got halfway to the woods, I put it in my lip. <laughs> when I got to the woods, I was drunk. <laughs> I was drunk. I spread in my sack out and laid down on it. I told my brother I was sick. I couldn't get no wood. <laughs> He got his sack of wood and went on back to the house and told Mom and them I was down there in the wood laying on my sack. I didn't tell that woman from that day to this and that I got her snuff. <laughs> okay. Come on. Okay. Now this is a catnip bush right here. Now this is a mint. And I, I bought this here from my granddaddy's place. Yeah, I tried to have me a garden wherever I go. A Cup of Tea with Annie Melvin 
was produced by Kavana Ramsire and Nikki Brown at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. All right, so we need a pan, but I'm not sure we have an actual pan. That one will work. This one will work? Okay, so now we want to combine one and a half cups all-purpose flour, the baking powder, the salt, sugar, and vanilla essence in a bowl. All right, I gotta find the baking powder and vanilla essence. Vanilla extract, that'll work. Some of us are in love with food. I, for instance, have to have a little dark chocolate with me at all times, preferably 65 to 73% cocoa. And like many great love affairs, our relationship with food is sometimes fragile and fraught with problems. Who among us doesn't have their own quiet food obsessions? What was once your good friend can just as quickly turn into your worst enemy. In our next story, food becomes the battlefield on which one family's difficulties are played out. Here's Concerning Breakfast by Annie Cheney and Jay Allison. Okay, so um, tell me what you had for breakfast. Oh my God, you don't really want to know. <laughs> um, eight ounces of non-fat plain stony field yogurt mixed with one whole 35-calorie non-sodium rice cake mixed with... Five ounce cup of Kashi cereal mixed with a half an ounce of little boxes of raisins, mixed with a tablespoon of flaxseed powder, uh, mixed with <laughs> a quarter cup of non fat mm, friendship cottage cheese, a cup of black coffee, and guilt. Vivian is a friend from my past. When she agreed to meet me, I didn't know what to expect. They had to take out most of my back top teeth because they were deteriorating and there was bone loss. It was the malnutrition that did that. So they took them out, and I thought, this is really great because now my cheeks would sink in the back like the models. <laughs> and they made You it. did not. I did. Oh, absolutely. I met Vivian when I was anorectic. I was 15. She was 36. We shared a room in a hospital where there were other anorectics. I'd lost my period then and my breasts. My bones stuck out, and I wanted to die. Vivian convinced me by example to get better. And so I did. But she didn't get better, and she almost died. When I was going down towards 60, I would crawl out of bed, out of the futon, because I'd be lying there having a panic attack that I was gonna, I was having heart palpitations, and it was, it was hard to breathe. And I, I gotta get some food, and I thought about the food I'd get, and I was alone in the house. And I would crawl to the kitchen, I'm getting dizzy even thinking about it now. And I'd crawl up to the fridge and I'd open it up, but I'd be on my knees. And I'd open a yogurt, and I'd take a spoonful, and I could feel it go down, and really feel it go down my chest, you know, the coolness of it, like it was flip-flopping every rib down and dripping off my ribs into my stomach. And suddenly I, the one, one, you know, heaping teaspoon, and I would go, wow, that was just what I needed. And I'd get standing back on my feet, and I'd go, I'm fine. Starvation gets people's attention when nothing else will. Anorectics know that. I knew that.
learned it when I was 14. I, at one time, could play all of the movements, which were four movements, I think. And the reason why I played the piece in the first place was that I used to listen to the version that Horowitz played. When I was sick, I would play it over and over and over again in the living room on my father's phonograph. And I remember sitting in this big chair by the window and I would drink this tea that I always drank when I was sick because I was freezing all the time. And I would eat a carrot because carrots are the vegetables that are the lowest in calories. And then I would eat the carrot like a corn cob because carrots have many layers. So you nibble around the outside level, level and then you come to another carrot inside. I had half a croissant toasted with um, peach jam, Dad's peach jam that he makes, the non-cooked method. That's my mother. Her recording levels are too hot. She's distorting. Well, I buy these calendars for every year, and they show a month at a time on a page. And I've saved them back to the 60s. It's very interesting. I can see and hear when Mrs. Boyle is picking you up from school and who's coming to play and uh, dentist appointments. And I see here that all I have on the day that you went in the hospital is that we had a dinner with the Anthonys. And I also had an appointment at your high school, which I gather I didn't keep. But I did put a red star on there, which meant that was the date that you went in the hospital. Just a red star in a calendar full of details. It's as though that day never happened. I think it was sort of a denial. I just couldn't believe it. I thought, oh, everything is so wonderful now. It's so much fun and I'm enjoying everything. I can't believe this is, how could this be happening when everything is going so well? Now, just like then, sometimes the most obvious things go unrecognized. Do you remember when I took all those pills? Was that before you went in the hospital? Oh, yes, I do remember that. Uh, But not too clearly. I remember you were in your room and you were in your bed and you were... What had happened? Had you... What kind of pills were they that you took? Um, They were antihistamines. And what was that supposed to do for you? Sleep forever. Forever? Oh, my God. I must have focused on that, but, I mean, I... That's just a terrible memory. I Was that in the fall... And what happened? Did you vomit them and then somehow you woke up or did you not take enough or what? We didn't have to get any emergency service. I didn't take enough. Oh, that was wonderful. What about the morning that we went to the hospital? Do you remember that? Well, it was the middle of January. It was bitterly cold. 
I think there was something like an ice storm. There had been terrible ice, and we had this very early morning appointment. Um, you refused to put on enough clothing to confront that kind of cold. So we had the terrible difficulty that those situations entailed of struggling with you and finally deciding we just had to get out of there. And, and uh, so I think I took some extra things with me uh, just in case we could persuade you to put them on. And we went outside and we couldn't get a cab anywhere. So we finally went down to the corner and got on the Crosstown bus. All three of us were standing up, but we were not standing together. But now that I think about it, it was remarkable that you actually stayed with us. I mean, in the past, you'd walk away, you'd leave, you wouldn't come. Um, we got off the bus, and it was so bitter. And we tried to cross the street, and it was a sheet of ice. Dad was slipping, and you were, I think, slipping, and it was extreme discomfort and despair. And, of course, the situation was the same way. When I first moved in, I shared a room with a tall, blonde flight attendant. She was also a nurse. Before she moved into the anorectic ward, she took turns at both jobs, a 12-hour shift at the hospital and then off on a plane somewhere. She worked 24 hours a day, she said, just to wear herself out. She was the one who taught me how to do aerobics in the closet. We would get up at 5 together, turn on a radio just barely enough to hear it, and then we'd jump up and down in our socks. At seven, the day nurse arrived and herded us into the bathroom, where we were supposed to get rid of as much as possible before we got weighed. Weigh-in was sometime after the bathroom visit. We'd go down to the room that had a scale and line up outside. There was always some commotion at weigh-in. Someone would start wailing or shaking or screaming. They didn't want to get on the scale. They didn't want to eat. Go to hell. There we all were in a frenzy about our bodies and about facing the truth of the scale. Women with children and husbands, young girls and 20-somethings who looked at times 80 and at times like infants. And then it was time for breakfast. Well, I had uh, blueberry muffin, fresh mint tea, fresh ra raspberries and fresh black raspberries and a half a bagel and strawberry jam. That's my father on a lounge chair in his favorite spot. We're in historic Columbia County, <laughs> in the backyard of our home in what we call the Oasis. Looking out over the pool with a huge tree over our head, tables and chairs here, so we can eat out here if we ever want to. The thing you have to understand about my father is that he grew up poor, and then he got rich. There are times he remembers when he didn't have enough to eat. Sometimes he even stole food for his dinner. Now he's known for his brilliant gourmet cooking. Uh, the thing that, that, of course, absolutely destroyed me, came close to destroying me, was when you suddenly decided you weren't going to eat. And... Uh, 
I, I couldn't believe that I'd worked all that time and to bring home money to help everybody uh, have a good living and eat. When somebody decides not to eat, that really does throw it back in your face. What the hell have I been living for? I mean, I've been trying to help this family and this thing and self-sacrificing and a lot of other stuff. And all of a sudden, somebody is trying to kill themselves by not eating. And then what everyone would just think? Uh, well, no, everybody would say something was wrong in that household. The parents had something wrong with them because their child starved herself to death. And it must have been terrible that she'd want to starve herself to death to get out of that family. The thing that still strikes me in my memory is the most height of the defiance was we had gone out to dinner at some restaurant along Columbus, and you got angry at dinner for a reason I didn't fully understand, but because you wouldn't eat, and I was trying to get you to eat. So I followed you down the block there by, by the, behind the museum, and I was saying, come back, come back, you have to eat. And you bit me in the, <laughs> you bit me in the arm. <laughs> But I was trying to take over. And then this man ran up to me and he said, uh, to you and me, and he looked, turned to you and he said, what, What's going on here? Are you all right? He said to you. I could see he thought I was an abusive parent. And he, he was asking you if he, he should do anything. It was totally humiliating to have a total stranger say, Should I be helping you take this brute away? I'll tell you, that was very humiliating. What I wanted by whittling myself down to the core was to get my father to see me more clearly, to realize that I was separate from him, and that he should love me anyway, maybe even because we were different. That's what I wanted then, although I never told him. Today I had... Scrambled eggs, toast, raspberries, orange juice, and coffee. When I got sick, my older brother was away at college. Even though he wasn't around that much, he knew something was wrong with me, even before I started to lose weight. And it bothered him. It was a little strange because you don't really understand why it just sort of pops up like a mushroom on your lawn one day. Suddenly it's there, and you're like, oh... What is this? So you thought everything was fine? Well, I think I didn't want to think that things weren't fine. What do you um, mean? Well, I think there was always an emphasis on being perfect in the family. Everything had to be perfect. I like that idea. I still feel that way in many ways. Maybe you provided evidence that things might not be perfect by the way you were acting. One way our family was perfect, I mean really perfect, was at the breakfast table. In our family, there's a lot of dishes. Our table, sometimes I'd look and there'd be so many plates on the table, you could barely see the table. Even for a simple breakfast. So no meal was simple. Everything was very elaborate and formalized and ceremonial and had a lot of different... It was very complicated. You could never have a simple... Breakfast. Like a bowl of cereal or something? No, no, that could never happen. Well, I mean, a lot of people like to cut corners and not, you know, have a full breakfast, but I've always felt it was nice. 
it was a pleasant experience, and it one, it's one that stays with one. Four glass plates. What are, the, what are those for? Well, that goes under the fruit. I suppose the whole basis of it is that I just like it to look nice. And I think it gives you a lift, even if you're just passing through and you're called to breakfast and you sit down and oh, you think, oh, God, another day. But somehow it registers, or at least it registers with me. If I have a nice breakfast and I'm not feeling just great, it helps to improve my mood. So I think it's a nice thing to do. Mm-hmm. Would you like some raspberries? We ate in the day room, which was always full of stale smoke from the night before. Our trays came laden with various pre-measured parcels. Melba toast in packets of four, plastic containers of raisins and peanut butter, all things that we had gone over with the nutritionist the day before. I remember sitting in her office in the afternoon. She'd take out a calculator and the next day's menu and say, What do you want to eat tomorrow? I don't know. I don't want to eat tomorrow. It went on like that for a while, until one morning the doctor said he'd put me on the tube if I didn't start eating. I remember leaving his office and turning down the hall and seeing some girls there who were taking turns walking up and down, judging each other's thighs. Each one said hers were bigger, but none of them were. And it dawned on me then that if I kept going, I might never come back. And so, at lunch that day, I asked the girl next to me if she'd dare me to finish what was on my plate. She did. And from that day on, I ate, and they finally let me out on April Fool's Day, 1988. I think I had some flowers in your room where I'd done, put your favorite sheets on the bed, and and you seemed pleased by that. Um... But I very quickly realized how fragile you were. But the helpful thing was that while you were fragile, you also seemed so appreciative of my help. And there were times when you it was so overwhelming that you would just collapse in sobs on your bed. And... Um, remember the nice thing was that um, that I actually felt that I could be helpful to you and so sometimes I'd just sit and talk to you and um, and afterwards you'd say well you know I, I, I really appreciate your support and so that made me feel much better because it was so different than it had been six months before when it was impossible to reach you, so <laughs> well, um, anyway, that was a wonderful turning. It was a wonderful turning point. When I came home, I ate my breakfast somewhere else until eventually it got easier, and I started to sit at the table across from my brother again. There were still a lot of plates and we didn't talk about what had happened. In fact, we haven't really talked about it until now, ten years later. To tell you the truth, I'm pretty hard on my parents and the part they played in my illness. 
But looking back on those times, I also think about my mother and how she kept trying no matter how often I retreated into my body and refused her help. I wanted relationships on my terms. My father's like that too. When I was still in the hospital and I was starting to get better, I called him up and asked him if he'd take me to the movies. He said he'd take me if I gained half a pound. And so we didn't go. We were trying to coerce each other and defy each other. We were locked in some kind of a grip of anger and defiance. It was as if one of the Greek gods decided to punish us for hubris. Where'd that come from? The hubris came from our presumably uh, thinking we were doing all the right things, going to a private school and having a, a materially successful life and whatever, instead of uh, having a, some kind of reverence for each other. I tell you, sometimes I think the only thing that makes a difference is passing the passage of time. You make all kinds of mistakes, but time passes and some, somehow they, things get cured a little bit and, and life goes on in a new way. morning for breakfast, I had a toasted everything bagel with eggs and cheese and a cup of Earl Grey tea with milk and sugar. And uh, that's it. Concerning Breakfast was produced by Jay Allison and Annie Cheney. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Everyone has something to say about food, and stories about food, and guilt about food. Here's your chance to tell us all about it. We eat this stuff up. Questions, comments, rants, raves, and recipes can all be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Hey, you're listening to ReSound. I'm Jad Abumrad of Radiolab, a huge fan of the Third Coast Festival. Let me tell you why. Well, there are like 14 million reasons why, but here's one. I think about a story called If, which if you haven't heard, you should go to their website, thirdcoastfestival.org, dig it up. But it's just one of those stories, and I think I heard it at my first festival, um, that just threw me in a different direction. I, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know that that was allowed. And were it not for moments like that, which happened disproportionately at the Third Coast Festival, Radiolab just wouldn't be what it is today. It just wouldn't. So I want to urge you to go to thirdcoastfestival.org, sign up for their uh, radio documentary inbox delivery thing that happens twice a month. Also, you can see uh, listings for live events that they're doing and show them some love. Support this one-of-a-kind festival at thirdcoastfestival.org. 
and thanks. Alright, I think we need to add the milk. Yep. Three large eggs. Okay, so now we beat at medium speed for two minutes. So we've got our electric mixer ready. Among our most primal needs, food is way up there. And arguably, one of the most primal foods is the earthy, dirty mushroom a fungal link between us and nature in all its leafy, shaded glory. Producer Scott Carrier went with a friend to pick mushrooms on the banks of the Yellowstone River, and then, suddenly, the moist, dank little mushroom became the conduit to good friends, meandering conversation, and a little introspection. I have a friend who hunts mushrooms in Montana. He called and said, It's the spring runoff, man. We can borrow a drift boat from my neighbor and go out on the river and look for morels along the shore. Come up, bring a bottle of wine, and we'll have dinner. He lives in Paradise Valley. The river is the Yellowstone, a 500-mile drive from my home in Salt Lake City, but I told him I'd be there and to wait for me. I left at night, slept in my truck, and made it to Yellowstone Park by morning. I should have just driven straight through the park, but it was a beautiful day. Cumulus clouds, fresh air, wildflowers, so I stopped along the way. First by a stream where I knew there were some hot springs. I went for a quick plunge, got out and sat by the pool, my skin tingling from the sulfur, and watched an osprey hover above the stream and then dive straight down, 50 feet, pulling up at the last instant, hitting the water talons first, but it flew away with nothing. Then there were some buffalo crossing the Madison River. Twelve of them came down a steep hillside, through some trees, and walked single file across the river. The river was maybe four feet deep in the middle, and watching them struggle in the current, I realized their bodies are shaped like airfoils, big up front and coming to a point at the butt, maybe an adaptation for the high winds on the prairie. Then there was Yellowstone Lake, where I had to stop and skip some rocks. Then Yellowstone Falls. Below the lake, the river drops through a series of waterfalls down into Yellowstone Canyon. I didn't get out of the park until 6 o'clock, driving north, following the Yellowstone River into Paradise Valley. I showed up at my friend's house as the sun was setting, apologized for being late, and my friend said it was no big deal because he and his wife had gone out on the river without me and brought back 60 to 80 morel mushrooms. Cone-shaped sponges, two to four inches long. Doug Peacock and his wife Andrea. I'm just cutting these things in half, kind of blowing off the, uh, the grass. And it's best not to wash them. You don't, you don't need to wash them. These are right off the river bottom. See, this is a black morel here. It's pretty thin-skinned. And... Here's a white morale. Oh, damn. These things, these are, these are sensual mushrooms. All right, tell me where you got, where did you get these? Well, on the Yellowstone River, on the islands on the Yellowstone River. Cottonwood bottoms, willows, cottonwoods combined. They grow in such beautiful places, you can't believe it. And they're fresh. These are as fresh they, as they These are picked today. <laughs> what the f***, man? <laughs>
You should learn about these things, you ignorant son of a... Because <laughs> you live here. And, and you have these gaps in your education. And it, it appalls me. So where did you... What? I was just going to say, we'll take these scraps in and throw them out in the yard and hope to start our own morel patch. We've had a because of mycelia, you know. I mean, it just takes a spore. There are billions of spores dropping from these billions of spores. And, you know, it grows underground as like a spider web of uh, connections, you know. And uh, it's called mycelia. Right. Like they've been recorded in, in Michigan as being the world's largest organism. You know, I forget, there's several acres, you know, like a fairy ring. But, you know, this is the whole mass of mycelia, which is like this spider web, like in almost microscopic stuff that grows underground. And the total number of intersections is greater than our brains or that of a great cetacean. So it could be some people, not even very hippie-like, sometimes argue that, you know, these are sentient creatures. They're much older. You know, they're the oldest things, you know, among the oldest things we know. They're not plant. They're not animal. They're whatever they are. And perhaps they have a cosmic memory as... uh, you know, like a like an Earth memory, as some of my uh, microphiliac uh, friends uh, suspect. But they think that this uh, the mushroom itself is sentient. That it knows. That it's you know. That it, and and perhaps it's evolved itself to be to further that sentient awareness. Beats my ass. I just eat them. You you know. You can do them all kinds of fancy uh, gourmet ways. I just fry them up with butter, you know. Well, what are you making tonight? How, what, what's the well? I, I've got a I've got a, a chicken with a with a morel stuffing, and I'm going to saute those on top of the stove right now. The meal was excellent. The mushrooms served both as a stuffing inside the chicken and separately in a syrup of butter and olive oil. Lots of red wine. We spoke of grizzly bears and Hollywood, the big monsters. We told stories about friends, the one who counts every bird he sees, the one who was hit by lightning, and friends who died, like Edward Abbey. A shot of Jack Daniels before going to bed. I drove home by a different route, along the headwaters of the Green River. It begins south of the park in a mountain range too beautiful to mention by name. The water comes down out of the mountains and winds through a high, wide valley that looks very much like the inner out between France and Switzerland. I pulled off the highway onto private property, a 3,000-acre ranch along the river, drove down a dirt road, and parked on a bridge over the river about a quarter mile from the ranch house. I knew I was trespassing, but I also knew the owner of the land and knew he wasn't home, that he was in New York City undergoing treatment for cancer. I wanted to tell him, Otis, it's cold here. The snow in the mountains hasn't even started to melt yet. The river is low and quiet by your house. The grass is as green as I've ever seen it, and there are pools of water all over the meadow, like little round mirrors reflecting the blue sky and white clouds. Your brother's cows are happy. The fish are waiting for your fly. Good luck, man. Wild Morels on the Yellowstone by Scott Carrier, an independent producer and writer based in Utah. 
Okay, so we've got the oven preheated to 350 degrees. So now we just put both our cake tins in the oven. 30 to 33 minutes. Let's do, let's 32. do 32. One and three quarters. Let's do 30. Be on the safe side, we'll check it. Maybe let's actually do like 28 and then check it. Okay, so now the icing. And now, from the sublime beauty of the banks of the Yellowstone to a completely different universe. The very urban, cutting-edge, bizarre, fascinating new culinary world of molecular gastronomy. Technically speaking, it's where food meets science. Non-technically speaking, it's food that's been extruded and frozen and pulled and combined and condensed and liquefied into all sorts of new shapes and textures until it's really no longer called a meal. It's called food architecture. Chicago's Alinea Restaurant is one of the founders of the molecular gastronomy movement. And while very few people can afford to take Alinea's 15-course tasting tour, food writer Jess Thompson did. And she wrote a great account of her experience eating there with a few girlfriends. She vividly described the unmarked building that opens up to a steely gray entryway that opens up into a private club-like minimalist space, the waiters who are astonishingly good-looking and obsessively fastidious, the verbal instruction manual that comes with every dish, the pure theater of this singular dining experience. We spoke with Jess and had her read a few of our favorite excerpts from the essay. Carrot Chanterelle Surprise. The next course comes in a wide, flat bowl, whose rim extends almost all the way back down to the table. In its center sits what appears to be a verine of six or seven shades of orange and brown, piled into a shot glass with apparent insouciance, like the chef was packing up his miniature culinary leftovers. Model waiter number one lists the layers. Pureed chanterelle mushrooms, sautéed chanterelles, an egg yolk poached perfectly at 165 degrees, just to its gelling point, sweet, sticky apricot leather molded around madras curry, a ball of Dijon sautéed spinach, a wisp of dried prosciutto. The whole thing is topped with a flurry of carrot foam. There's so much to write that I'm flying from one detail to the next, trying to zoom out and capture the whole dish in a single frame in my mind, figure out why fruit leather and prosciutto and carrot will work. Then the model waiters swoop down and remove the shot glasses, which I now realize are bottomless glass cylinders, and the food collapses together in the bottom of my bowl. I'm a little girl and it's Christmas. I want to clap happily because I appreciate the surprise, but it would be so loud and awkward. But it works. Silky mushroom puree, chewy apricot, earthy curry, and rich, bold egg yolk collide peacefully in my mouth. We all groan with pleasure. I want so badly to ask if they do takeout just to see what the model waiters would say. That's such a great line, I'm a little girl and it's Christmas. Have you ever had that feeling eating out before? I have had that feeling. What I never had was that feeling over and over and over again. I mean, I maybe I just didn't get enough Christmas presents growing up, but I was so floored by how constantly I was surprised. Every single time something landed in front of me, I thought, wow, this is different. And I think that's why people go out to dinner. I think for those of us that are around food a lot, it's difficult to find an experience that is full of surprises. I mean, the menu 
right now they have something, for example, that reads King Crab, Rhubarb, Lilac, Fennel. <laughs> you know, and it, it, you, you want to hear someone say, Discuss! Hot, liquid tuna tater tot. And what we will soon recognize is the tag team model waiter swoop. A mini white ceramic pedestal lands in front of each of us simultaneously. It's a croquette, a tiny panko-crusted deep-fried bomb with sorrel, fried capers, candied endive, and caviar on the top. We pick the pedestals up and knock the croquettes back like shots, as instructed. As the crust breaks, hot sour cream soup oozes onto my tongue. It tastes like a liquid tuna fish sandwich, and the outside is crunchy like a tater tot. I love it. What exactly is the tag team model waiter swoop? At most restaurants, waiters sort of float in and out. At Alinea, food seems to be theater. Uh, There is a very extensive choreography that seems to go with every course. So every time a course lands in front of you, these waiters sort of gather around you. You're sort of in the the middle of this almost football-like huddle. And (laughs) before you can actually eat something, there are instructions that come with your food. Um, I think something that's worth mentioning that is of course, intoned by the term model waiter, is that all of the people at Alinea seem to be disturbingly beautiful. One of our waiters was very, you know, Derek Zoolander. He was, um, (laughs) every time he finished speaking, he would close his mouth and sort of do this little model-y pout. And do you think that all of this uh, model waiter behavior, whether it's the compulsive straightening of the plate, the putting the cutlery on pillows, uh, did all that get annoying or was it completely appropriate to the experience? For me, I felt it was part of the experience. A woman I was eating with was completely overwhelmed and by the end began to move things just to see how long <laughs> to annoy it took them. the waiters to come back. Yeah. So it became a little ridiculous, but I loved how artful it was. Passover ping pong balls. Now it gets weird. Tall, bullet-shaped shot glasses appear to be holding some greenish liquid and a ping pong ball. I realize I have an automatic food identification mechanism that's no longer working. Model sommelier looks at us earnestly and gives us instructions that are difficult not to construe as sexual. Ladies, these balls are bigger than they appear. We suggest you swallow the whole thing in one bite, take all the liquid at once, including the ball, and close your mouth around the ball so that the liquid inside the ball doesn't spurt out everywhere. We avoid each other's eyes and giggle like 14-year-olds. Is he doing this on purpose? I do as I'm told, and yes, the balls are much bigger than they look. Celery juice goes down first, and right as the ball, really a cocoa butter shell infused with horseradish, hits my tongue. It shatters, releasing a cold, sweet Granny Smith apple juice that chases the celery juice, leaving the cocoa butter shell in my mouth, unwanted as an empty candy wrapper and not that different in texture. It's like I'm chewing on an apple and horseradish flavored pair of those red wax lips. I force myself to swallow, but I can't get rid of the aftertaste fast enough. We all make horrible faces. I think Passover just erupted in my mouth, says Kathy. By our count, we are now a third of the way there, and I'm starting to get nervous. What if it gets worse than this? I'm silently thankful that I'm not meeting anyone for the first time tonight.
So just how disgusting was that Passover ping pong taste? And uh, what do you do when you're at a restaurant of that caliber and something is just plain? Ugh. Well, the difficult thing about Alinea is that for someone like me, someone who's relatively used to judging food, it's a little weird to be dropped into a situation where I can no longer tell whether something looks or smells or tastes right because I have nothing to compare it to. You know, how am I how am I supposed to know if a horseradish infused cocoa butter ping pong ball has been well executed? When was I, I've never eaten a ping pong ball. It, it's almost like taking a grown up back into a child's realm where you just think you hate something because you don't because <laughs> you've never eaten tomatoes. You don't like tomatoes. You just don't like them. It forces you to reconsider your opinions, I guess. <laughs> right. Um, in the piece, I think I said something about my anticipation being matched by a twin disappointment. Because it's so thrilling to know that what you are going to experience is completely unique. But at the same time, it's also a little sad to know that once it's over, you you don't have that virginity ever again. Underwear drawer duck. There's more rearranging. Water here, plates there. One person has both still and sparkling water. Would you like hard bubbles or soft bubbles? And the waiters seem to disagree about which goes where. So she's constantly guessing which is which and wondering how many minutes it will be before another person touches her water glasses. I sense the whole table recoiling when the waiters begin marching over again. It's been almost three hours and we're beginning to fade. But wait, are they reading our minds? They come bearing pillows, big square pillows covered in crisp white linen and I'm momentarily convinced it's nap time. As they get closer, an unmistakable lavender aroma envelops our space, and I think how wonderful it would be if one of these pillows arrived in the middle of a Trans-Pacific airline flight, instead of on my dinner table, where I think my plate should be. But there will be no nap. Duck-laden plates land on each pillow, and we're instructed to eat quick. Each time I cut into the duck, invisible puffs of lavender air escape from the pillow and season the duck through my sense of smell. I'm delighted. I don't like the tiny turnips braised in red wine, and the stabilized yogurt water seems sort of superfluous next to the rich duck flavor. But this combination of textures and senses makes me want to buy a candle in every food flavor. Some disagree. I found the lavender really offensive, says Kathy. It was like eating my underwear drawer. It is incredible to eat food that plays tricks on your mind because we have trained ourselves to associate certain flavors with certain shapes and certain textures. And molecular gastronomy breaks those rules, which is really interesting. But one of the things that I learned about myself going to Alinea is that I like food in its original form. One of the desserts at Alinea had a little pile of powdered olive oil, which is amazing. Like, I can't even think about how to powder olive oil. Like, I I can't even begin to imagine how one would do that. And it was an interesting taste, but if I want olive oil, I want to pour it. Instead of having a vanilla-flavored powdered olive oil, I would rather have the recipe that I posted on my blog along with this article, which was a recipe for vanilla olive oil cake, where all of the ingredients are things I can identify. Whether that makes me stodgy, whether that makes me a food prude, I, you know, that's up to someone else to judge. <laughs> um, but I think one of the astounding things about molecular gastronomy is that it teaches you how you think about food. 
That was food writer and recipe developer Jess Thompson, whose essay, Alinea, appeared in the best food writing of 2008. To find a link to her blog, Hogwash, or get her recipe for vanilla olive oil cake, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Cake! Cake with milk, of course. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency, on the web at doejo.com. Dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. Support also comes from Busy Beaver Button Company, your source for custom buttons, magnets, and bottle openers. All products proudly made in Chicago. Order online at busybeaver.net. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, and the Menaki Foundation. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. That's all for today on The French Chef. This is Julia Child. Bon appétit.